Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is part one of The Way of the Shark, where I discuss the influence and value of ground fighting in martial arts and self-defence. It's been a rather long break since this episode and the last one, so I won't take up any more of your time. Please proceed into these dangerous and sometimes murky waters. I hope you enjoy the show. The Great Grappling Art moved strategically through Brazil towards North America, propelled by ambition and a drive to be successful. The schools were just accessible enough to permit a rush of middle-class students in South America and a select few Hollywood celebrities in California. There was little other motion other than raise attention through combative efficiency in challenge fights, reinforcing the art's victim, a message that would be shouted far and wide across martial arts subculture seven decades after the art had become an offshoot of Carno Gigaro's judo. By the 1980s, the art might have been any other martial art that had been spawned by the Orientalist awe of the 1960s New Age movement or the 1970s Kung Fu boom, save for the genuine intention, born out of its earliest days of promotion, to prove itself by engaging in unarmed duels. The uninitiated fighters looked at the no-holds-barred arena. Should we do some grappling training? asks one. The others giggle. What's to know? Hit him hard enough and he won't be able to grapple you. I cannot see much benefit in rolling around on the ground with someone. That's something we used to do as kids in the playground. Another group shakes their heads. How dare they challenge us? One martial artist stepped forward. Let's fight them. Shut their stupid mouths. Take their heads off. The rest disagreed. Our art is too deadly to be used in such challenge fights. Now hold still while I practice my technique on you. Eventually the naive martial arts fighters enter the arena. They turn to their colleagues for support. Now how about that fight? The champions and representatives of their arts ask. You go ahead, the supporters reply. We'll wait here by the ringside. The fighter moved towards his unusually crouched opponent in a contrasting high stance. At first his movements were graceful, but as he neared the fight zone he faltered. The opponent moved towards the centre of the arena. The opponent raised his arms to prompt the fighter to instinctively do the same, as if they were to trade punches. The fighter's stance was narrow. The opponent recognised prey. In the November 1994 edition of Black Belt magazine, Carlos Machado was first quoted by David Mayer with the following predetermined philosophy on his approach to fighting. Quote, after the clinch, it doesn't matter what happens. One way or another, we're going to hit the ground, and we'll be in my world. The ground is my ocean. I'm the shark, and most people don't even know how to swim. End quote. This article had been published one year after a world event had caused shockwaves through the martial arts community. The Ultimate Fighting Championship was billed and marketed as a controversial no-holds-barred martial arts tournament to finally decide the world's most effective fighting art. Different representatives from different martial arts disciplines stepped into an appropriately theatrical cage to engage in a consensual unarmed duel. The tournament boasted no judges and no weight classes. Otherwise, there would only be three rules. No bites, no eye gouges and no groin shots, each of which would be penalised with a $1,500 fine. 
Fights were to be won via submission, knockout or corner stoppage. Rumours circulated in both media and amongst the fighters themselves that this was to be the closest thing to a legalised death match. The results of the first event spoke to the primal fears of many martial artists and fans alike. The metaphorical bubble was beginning to burst. Athletes supposedly championing their respective art striking prowess were diminished to what many would associate with infantile brawls. The bouts looked ugly and messy. With the exception of sumo wrestler Tila Tuli, all those with strike-based backgrounds were defeated by grapplers. Striker-on-striker fights became slugfests that would contribute towards the early UFC's reputation as a human cockfight and the stigma mixed martial arts even faces today. Kickboxer and boxer Kevin Rosier smashed the asthmatic Kempo kickboxer Zane Frazier to the mat and then while supporting himself on the cage began stomping on the back of his head before the corner threw in the towel. Rosier would then later suffer a similar fate in his next fight against Gerard Gordeaux, the Savat and Kyokushin Karataka, who had kicked the tooth out of the mouth of the Dan Tuli in the opening bout. This time Gordo would deliver stomps to the Dan Rosier's liver before his corner stopped the bout. By comparison, the grapplers took their opponents to the ground and finished them with clean submissions. Hoist Gracie, representing Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, emerged as the champion with his family's specialised art of ground fighting. By the time the Black Belt article had been published, there had been a second UFC. This time there was double the number of fighters and viewers were provided with the same story. The grapplers prevailed throughout the competition, with all bar one of the strike-based fighters winning against their fellow strikers with grappling submissions or strikes administered on the ground. Hoist Gracie emerged as the champion again, and he was ready for the next one that would follow before the year was out. This time, neither he nor his intended opponent, Ken Shumrock, made it to the final. Both won their matches, but Hoist was pulled out of the rest of the tournament by his family due to hypoglycemia and extreme fatigue. Shamrock, whose motivation for competing again came from wishing to fight Gracie in a rematch, withdrew from the final bout. Shamrock's own martial arts background was also grappling based. Ground fighting has long been regarded with disdain by the larger martial arts community. When Greco-Roman wrestling emerged in the mid-19th century, it was met with contempt by several British martial artists. Having been founded in France, one might assume a certain degree of prejudice in England, especially at that time of its emergence when the Napoleonic Wars were a relatively recent memory. Similar francophobia can be seen by the British and particularly English aversion to kicking that very possibly stems from a reaction to the French martial art of Savat. British late 18th century and 19th century bare-knuckle boxing allowed wrestling holds above the waist and takedowns in a similar fashion to Greco-Roman wrestling, however it notably prohibited both kicking and ground fighting. The ground grappling side of Greco-Roman wrestling was considered to be decidedly un-English by Walter Armstrong, author of Wrestling Styles and Systems, in 1891, and a kind of dogfight on the ground. English boxing coach Andrew Newton echoed Armstrong's sentiments regarding its un-Englishness. Both men believed it undermined the national sense of fair play which carried over into the belief that even in a self-defence fight, one should allow an enemy to get up after being downed. Although catchers catch can wrestling did gain a certain degree of notoriety as a professional sport in Britain and toured alongside boxing booths on circuses and fairgrounds, by the 1920s this began evolving into the stage spectacle that we now know as pro wrestling or wrestling. Modern professional wrestling, a form of entertainment art, largely emphasises the stand-up side of grappling, keeping the ground for rest holds and for the all-important drama of the pin. Even Carno Gigaro was apparently not a fan of the ground-fighting element in his judo, known as Niwaza, seeing the real art being in the throws. 
Modern judo certainly reflects this particular part of his vision, if nothing else. For all of Kano's desire to modernise jiu-jitsu through his art, fully embracing the Budo philosophy, there was still something of a battlefield samurai at the core of the system that had little interest in ground fighting. Kano saw groundwork to be too easy and also somewhat shared Armstrong and Newton's views on its unaesthetic appeal. According to the biography The Way of Judo, a portrait of Jigoro Kano and his students, Kano felt that ground fighting was undignified and it quickly degenerated into an unseemly schoolyard brawl. He also deemed it as less safe than stand-up grappling and was not suited for dealing with more than one opponent. These are all points worth revisiting in this podcast, as they will be reused in many arguments regarding ground fighting's legitimacy. However, Kano begrudgingly kept the pins, the submissions, and even fighting from the back, which was fairly peculiar even within submission grappling styles, when he conceded its combat efficiency. Much like the Gracies that would follow him, Kano staked a lot on live practice or randori, and earned his school's reputation by having his students defeat rival martial artists. In Kano's case, this wasn't a broad spectrum of styles, but rather representatives of the old guard traditional jiu-jitsu. However, understanding how often grappling bouts would end up on the ground, and how unambiguously they could be won that way, he wasn't going to give up an area that maintained his school's fighting legitimacy. For the best part of the 20th century, it would appear that Brazil was the only country that celebrated ground fighting via their televised Valley Tudo fights. When the Gracies weren't successfully defeating most opponents from other clubs in their schools and in the ring, they were taking challenge matches on the beaches. Is it any surprise that the uniform of the no-gi or submission grappler has its basis in rash guards and board shorts? Surfing was a big part of the Gracie family's youth culture, and this culture has often had its own tribes where rivalries spill over into fights. The beaches, like the matted areas of many a training hall, present an environment that favours the master of the ground fighting. The no-gi submission grappling side of Brazilian jiu-jitsu possibly forged through the many belts held during the Gracie's feud with Brazil's other popular grappling style, Luta Livre. Despite strong representation from Marco Ruas, who would win UFC 7, the art has yet to come close to the popularity of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Whereas Brazilian jiu-jitsu owes its direct origin to Count Koma Maeda, Mitsuyo's teaching of Kano Jigaro's Kodokan Judo, Luta Livre was developed from Euclid's Hatem's development of British Catch's Catch Can Wrestling. Catch's Catch Can was probably a fusion of British folk wrestling and Jiu-Jitsu in the mid to late 19th century. Hatem, like the Gracies, was a respected fighter who fought challenge matches in both submission grappling and Valetudo rule sets. This was where he and his students would clash with the Gracies. We cannot understate the cultural influence of the way catch wrestling and judo, jiu-jitsu were first promoted in Britain and both North and South America. Looking back, both have an especial cultural connection to me, which I've never really considered before. My family were both travelling circus people and travelling fair people, or showmen. Boxing and wrestling booths were a common mainstay of both circuses and fairs during the 19th century and up to the middle of the 20th century. During these eras, Fairs and circuses were pretty much one and the same, and music halls were also fairly interchangeable, all of them hosting many of the same artists and promoters. Japan's earliest promoters of jiu-jitsu gave demonstrations and actively participated in challenge matches in these settings. This is where they helped grow their reputations. Patrons were offered cash prize incentives to either pin or submit the show's star grapplers or to just last for a set length of time without being beaten. It was this background that saw catch wrestling eventually become the stage professional wrestling we know today, following Ed Strangler Lewis going for a dive during his World Heavyweight Championship defence. 
I also recently discovered that Maeda was promoting his judo, or at that time known as jiu-jitsu, on a Brazilian circus that was co-owned by Carlos Gracie Sr.'s father. Quite possibly, much like catch wrestlers and Kano's other students who were fighting their own challenge matches in Japan, Maeda had worked out that taking the average challenger to the ground and finishing them decisively there with a submission was an expedient method. However, as we have seen, ground fighting was generally disrespected by fighters and the general public alike. It was less aesthetically pleasing to a lay audience and appeared unsophisticated to martial artists, both of which associated with the way they had seen animals fight or the way school fights often ended up. This disrespect and disregard allowed it to become the best secret weapon for challenge fight grapplers. As movies and media gave support to various different martial arts that showcased their striking techniques or dramatic throws, in the background, in the backs of the minds of many people, there was an innate primal fear that all those aesthetically pleasing strikes could be muffled and that everything would default back to literally scrapping in the dirt. Such a concern was given academic support in 1977 when the well-respected ethologist Desmond Morris wrote his book Man-Watching. In his chapter on fighting, Morris stated that unarmed fights are rare and contrasts considerably with the stylized scenes in movies, often consisting of a fast series of strikes from an attacker to a victim who either backs away, covers their body or attempts to grab in order to convert the fight into a grappling contest. Morris said that these grappling contests often ended up on the ground. Such assertions would become the basis for what would be preached by a new generation of martial artists two decades later. A 1988 review of the LAPD use of force incidents apparently revealed that 90% of fights ended up on the ground. This became a common line used to sell grappling and ground fighting books, videos and lessons. In 1989, Horian Gracie, son of Helio Gracie, who was Carlos Gracie's younger brother, appeared in Playboy magazine discussing something called the Gracie Challenge. Ever since the earliest days of Brazilian jiu-jitsu marketing, Carlos Gracie Sr. had placed an advert in Brazil's largest newspaper stating, quote, if you want a broken arm or rib, contact this number, end quote, leveraging cultural machismo to legitimise his fighting art. This challenge was an extension of what had been occurring in the circuses, fairs and music halls now brought to the training hall and anyone else's training hall or backyard. The challenge migrated to Brazilian television in the 1950s and 60s as Valetudo saw cross-style virtual no-holds-barred professional contests occurring on a regular basis. This remained a powerful marketing tool for the Gracies. Horian Gracie had started again at the bottom when he travelled up to South California, getting extra work in movies and recruiting students to his garage dojo. Eventually, one of his students set up a challenge match between Horian and famed American kickboxing champion Benny the Jet Yukadets. The story goes, Yukadets asked Horian if they were going to fight on the mats or on the hard floor, to which Horian confidently quipped, well, that depends. Do you want to be shown on the mats or on the hard floor? Apparently, Yukadets was very impressed with Horian after being submitted several times. However, despite much talk, they neither partnered to promote Horian's jiu-jitsu nor engaged in a professional rematch. This did not deter Horian, who was one of the main fight choreographers involved with Lethal Weapon's climactic unarmed duel, which ends with a triangle choke. With more challenge matches and Horian's other brothers joining him in the USA to simultaneously uphold the Gracie honour and promote the brand, word began to spread in the hugely influential Californian state. The Gracie Jiu-Jitsu school went under construction, with even Father Helio being involved. Helio had been taught by his brother Carlos, and had quickly taken on the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu mantle and been a big proponent of the martial arts David and Goliath appeal. 
Elio, who was smaller than Carlos and most of his students, had made a lot of adaptions to the art. Like Carno before him, he argued that small and clever could defeat larger and stronger. The ground, he argued, made size less important than the other ranges. Helio had become the family champion and fought in several significant Valetudo matches during Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu's formative years. Horian students included various individuals involved in the film industry, which further impressed advertiser Art Davy, who had considered using Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to promote a certain brand of beer, after he read the Playboy article on Horian. Soon he was promoting a documentary called Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in Action, which collected together footage of the Gracie Challenge, pushing the argument that their style could beat all other martial arts. All this excitement really was still somewhat under the radar as far as mainstream martial arts were concerned. Martial arts subculture has always operated in many bubbles, often oblivious to what is going on around their schools and associations. This was no different. Besides reading a single review in the UK's combat magazine entitled Gracie Shushitsu that mocked the Brazilian accent of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu teachers, I had little awareness of the martial art prior to the first Ultimate Fighting Championship. I recall picking up a copy of Terry O'Neill's lavish publication Fighting Arts to read about this remarkable event. The story spoke to the same worries and concerns in me that I spoke about earlier. With the exception of the publicity photographs and a few pictures of fighters squaring off, the action shots depicted what looked like combatants brawling on the ground. Tilia Tuli was criticised for demonstrating a lack of ground fighting knowledge when he placed both his hands on the ground and got kicked in the face. I read about an odd sounding technique called a shin lock. This was actually Ken Shamrock's ankle lock submission of Pat Smith. For all the different styles being represented, I read nothing that sounded like success stories for the stand-up striking styles I've been studying. As the 90s moved on, there were those outside of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu community preaching that if fights weren't over in the first few seconds, they ended up on the ground. Grappling, especially ground grappling, had finally won the mainstream respect it had earned. After a century, the challenge matches that had brought in the crowds to the circuses and fairs promoted by the people of my culture that had won Kano respect in Japan over the old-style jiu-jitsu and had brought in students to the Gracie schools was now a worldwide event. Many martial arts schools incorporated ground fighting when they had ignored it previously. This occurred with eclectic modern systems, traditional systems, and was reintroduced into comprehensive systems that had excluded them for reasons not far from those we discussed previously. Now the argument that the stand-up strike-based martial artists shouldn't have to train grappling for self-defence seems silly. Writer Robert W. Smith had contended that the wrestler would beat the boxer. Jeff Thompson had expressed the extreme importance of understanding how to fight on the ground for self-defence and saw the UFC as more vindication for what he had been demonstrating on a smaller scale with his Animal Day pressure testing. Ground fighting was now given a bigger platform to explore and develop. Arguments for aesthetic within the martial arts community were now shown up for the snobbery and logical fallacies that they were. Who cared if it didn't look pretty? The realists argued. Violence isn't pretty. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu rapidly evolved within its traditional gi and no-gi submission grappling areas respectively. Soon it earned an artistic respect never fully appreciated before. Kano had put it that stand-up fighting was far more sophisticated than ground fighting. The former took years to learn whilst the latter only a matter of months. This was now turned on its head. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts were typically earned after a minimum of nine years. By comparison, an average judo black belt was earned after around four and a half years. Ground grappling became a highly detailed and puzzling range, with new positions popping up on a regular basis. This stems from the fact that ground grapplers typically spar far more frequently than any other type of fighter. 
Far from being more dangerous than stand-up grappling, many participants have argued that it is the only range that can be sparred for extended periods of time up to competitive intensity with a far lower risk of injury than any other full-contact combat sport. As for integrity, for a long time Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has been the proud endorser of Carno Jigaro's belief in truth through life practice. Grades were earned when individuals could defeat most other students around their same belt level. The shark is perhaps one of the world's most feared predators. We might place a reason for this at the door of the Steven Spielberg adaptation of Peter Benchley's novel Jaws, which single-handedly invented the summer blockbuster. However, sharks have long been feared, and Benchley derived much of his inspiration for his story from reported incidents in the 20th century alone. In truth, shark attacks remain rare. However, shark hunting has enjoyed so much popularity that many species are now endangered. Likewise, just as ground grappling became very popular, it was only a matter of time before its infallibility was challenged. For decades, ground fighting had been the hidden weapon for the regular challenge fighter who could win unarmed duels with limited rules. The secrecy had been assured by the human desire to not fight in the dirt and the lack of appeal to the spectator. Now it had been hoisted into the public domain like never before. As more people crave realism and extremeness in their entertainment, the ground fighter appeared to take the stage as the champion of truth. However, now the excitement began to level off, it was time to take a sober look. What was the real value of ground fighting? Did all violence usually go to the ground if it wasn't over in the first few seconds? Would the ground fighters continue to dominate the new arena of mixed martial arts? I would like to extend my gratitude to everyone who supported this show and Club Chimera Martial Arts in general. My huge appreciation to all you guys who have written reviews on the internet platforms. Recent mentions here are Brian Inwards, who bid for my video call lesson via Eric Parsons' Karate for Life auction. We had an excellent discussion on the positive and negative aspects of the head guard in training. If anyone is interested in Brian and my discussion, I wrote a blog post about it up on the website. Thanks, Brian, for your generosity towards Eric's excellent cause and for bidding for me, as well as your very kind review. Check out the show notes for the Karate for Life link. Speaking of excellent causes, Oxfordshire Karate teacher and progressive cross-trainer Mary Stevens is currently taking the Myself Protection Programme to India as part of Fair Fight. This superb initiative is designed to empower women through martial arts. Mary's been training with me for a little while now, introducing, upgrading and adding concepts to our own superb classes for children and adults. Her feedback has really improved my own programme, which is constantly evolving. Thanks to your kind review on my services, Mary. It's been a pleasure to work with you. Club Chimera's pages on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram and Google. Special thanks to those who have put five-star reviews on my Google business page and on the podcast sharing platforms such as iTunes. These places are particularly helpful for both CCMA as a whole and for the success of this podcast. Next episode will continue The Way of the Shark as we begin to delve into the latter-day criticism of ground fighting. Thanks for listening. <laughs>